Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Greetings, virtual artisans. It's time to tear yourself away from your passion projects, just for a little while at least, and disappear into some digital distractions for another episode of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. And here he is, the technological virtuoso himself. It's Matthew Dickerson. How are you, Matt? I'm sitting here with very warm toes at the moment, James. I can't help <laughs> I myself with technology. <laughs> so I've, I do like to ride my bike. And of course, the best time to do that seems to be first thing in the morning. And it's just starting to get a bit of a nip in the air at the moment, just a bit too chilly. Yeah. And I normally have these little pockets that I put my boots into, my socket, my socket boots, my riding boots into to try and keep my toes warm. But it's still not quite good enough and I always come back with toes that I can't feel anymore uh. but I came across heated socks the other day oh and they're actually motorbike designed for <laughs> motorbikes socks, right? and you can buy them where you can plug them into the 12 volt power outlet on your motorbike but of course I ride, a, I ride a push bike and I don't have a 12 volt power outlet so you can also have batteries for them so a little battery mounts in the side <laughs> of the sock and they were so I tested them in the afternoon one day when I first got them oh, I've got to go and test these out and you've got three power settings of course you connect them to your phone because they've got Bluetooth because everything goes better with Bluetooth <laughs> and you turn them on. I thought, well, I've got to go straight to the maximum power. Sorry, level. these are smart socks. Smart socks, absolutely. Fantastic. And I turned them on to maximum power and went for a ride and I had to stop after about 15 minutes and turn the power down a bit because they were too hot. My toes <laughs> were actually getting too hot. The, the actual heating element is underneath Probably the ball of your foot and up to the toes seems yeah. to be where they heat from the bottom, not the top part. But I actually felt like I was burning the bottom of my feet, so I had to oh, stop wow. and turn it down. Now, that was it was probably only 12 degrees when I did that. So when I start riding early in the morning when it's maybe a couple of degrees Celsius, then I'll put them on maximum power. So I go, I don't think I'll be burning my feet The then. perfect thing for your next expedition to the South Pole. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> Frostbite on your toes, be gone. So they also make heated gloves. I haven't gone that far. Normally I ride with some nice big ski gloves in the middle of winter. Yeah, but right. I just thought, no, maybe heated gloves instead of ski gloves. The only problem I have is when I come back from a bike ride, I've actually got a little power wall next to my bike with all of these USB ports on it because I've got to plug in my – I've got a dash cam headlight, so I've got a headlight that's got video recording in it. So I've got to plug that in. I've got a dash cam tail light. And that's also got a radar control in it to tell me when cars are coming from behind that tells me onto my Garmin. Wow, so I've got yeah. that to plug in. I've got my Garmin to plug in. And, of course, I've got electronic gears. You're like the Tony Stark of bike riding. <laughs> well, well, I just – I actually think things I'm not – there's too many things to plug in. So that's four <laughs> things on my bike I've got to plug in. I've got this nice horn that's meant to be the loudest horn ever on there as well. But luckily it's not rechargeable battery, so I don't have to plug that in. So I've got four devices on my bike, and now I've got two batteries I've got to plug in as well for my socks. Socks, <laughs> yeah, right. So it takes me longer up. to get – plugged in and unplugged for before and after rides than it does for the actual <laughs> ride itself. But technology is well, in everything, isn't it? That's uh, just incredible. Technology, and when you've got um, heated socks, I tell you what, Douglas Mawson would reckon you're soft. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, heated socks when he clammed ever through there. <laughs> All right, we're celebrating a milestone in technology this week. Aussie mobile networks have turned 30, and looking back, it was a very different world back then in many ways. Things were a little bit fast and loose in those days, having emerged from the heady days of the 80s where everything seemed to be an experiment with few repercussions. Everything was good if it was new and had some glitz. In the 90s, digital technology had really found itself a space in the marketplace and consumers had little awareness of its capabilities, let alone the need for protection. Matt, in those days, mobile phone call connections were very open to tapping 
and the legal beagles had some catching up to do. It's actually quite interesting because I didn't realise this at the time, but it was a big deal at the time in 1993, April 1993. The GSM network was turned on in Australia, the Global System for Mobile Communications. And this was going to put Australia on the world map. Mm. We were finally going to have the same phone everywhere across the world was using. So you could pick up your phone here in Australia and you could go to Europe or wherever. Not America, because they're a bit different. They had a few different phone systems in America, but let's ignore them for the moment. But you had this global system for mobiles. We actually had the analogue system turned on, the AMP system, the Advanced Mobile Phone System. That was turned on back in February 87. So it took six years before the GSM system was about to be turned on. But... There was a bit of an argument in government between the Minister for Communications and the Attorney-General. The Minister for Communications at the previous election had come out and said, we're going to be part of the world network, you can have a digital mobile phone and you can pick up that phone and go anywhere in the world, isn't this fantastic, please elect me. Unbeknownst to him, the Attorney-General had a dimmer view of GSM because you couldn't tap GSM. You couldn't have a wiretap service ah. on digital services because the encryption... <laughs> that his plan. That's right. The yeah, encryption right. at the phone at one end and the encryption at the phone at the other end meant that the signal going between the two handsets, or obviously via the phone system, was encrypted to a point where government agencies couldn't crack ah. that. So the analogue system was pretty easy to crack... I didn't ever do it, of course, but I heard stories about people that basically went to a basic electronics store like a Tandy or a Dick Smith and they'd buy some receiver and they'd sit in and listen to mobile phone calls. Now, I don't know whether that was a myth or not, but the bottom line was that the analogue mobile phone system was a little bit more advanced than a two-way radio system, but you still could probably listen to it pretty easily. And of course, for... I think Prince Charles found out the hard (laughs) way too, didn't he? Is that right? There are a number of famous people across the world who found that out. So to, to basically, from there, the government agencies that might need to listen in, they could do it quite easily. But when the digital phone system came in, the Attorney General said, we need to have the technology to be able to wiretap when we need to wiretap. Not everyone, of course. They're not listening to our phone conversations, James. That wouldn't happen, but... Here comes a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> but if they needed to listen in and they had a court order to listen in, they needed the technology to do so. So the Attorney General said, let's delay the launch of GSM in Australia for about two years while we get the technology to be able to actually tap phones. Wow. And of course, the yeah. Minister of Communication said, no way, I put my election promise on this and occasionally I'd like to keep my promises, so can we <laughs> please have this? So they argue back and forth. In the end, the Minister for Communications had his way and they turned on that system back, as I said, in April 1993. It took them almost two years before you could actually tap a digital phone. Some $25 million they spent in, in those dollars, not in today's money, in those dollars, to actually get that technology in place to be able to tap a digital phone service. Now, if you're a crook in those days, we're going retrospective here, so we're not helping out the crooks, James, then if you had a phone conversation from a GSM mobile to a landline or to an AMPS mobile, you could still have that service tapped. But if you were going GSM to GSM, that's when the technology wasn't there in the government services to be able to tap that phone. So if you're a crook and you're in the know, you said, hey, James, you go and get a GSM, I'll use my GSM, we can have all the conversations we like and no one can listen in on those conversations. Goodness me. So, yeah, so again, I remember the launch. It was a big deal. I was selling mobile phones at the time and it was a big deal about this whole GSM launch and digital services. Isn't this fantastic? I had no idea about all this argy-bargy that was yeah. going on behind the scenes and I'm sure they didn't want to advertise the fact that, <laughs> hey, we can't tap these. Yeah, we don't want to because we can't listen in on you. That's right. So uh, it's interesting. Anyway, it's 30 years that's basically. That's so interesting, yeah. Yeah, it is. So 30 years since the GSM network was turned on. Of course, the biggest problem that most people had was that the 
range wasn't quite as good. Sure, mm. the reception was better. Sure, it seemed secure. This all seemed fantastic. And all those times I want to duck over to Europe that made the phone able to be used over there. But if I can't talk 10 kilometres away from the base station, who cares what sort of other services it's got? So and that, that came was, down to just to where the placement of aerials was, wasn't it? Is that right? Or no, was it the, the power of the phone as well? The, there's a whole range of variables in there, but the analogue system certainly did have range. It was greater. And having said that, it was one of those things where you'd get further away from the tower and the reception was a bit sketchy, but you mm. could kind of understand it. Whereas the GSM was either working or not. So when it was working, it was good, clear reception. But then it stopped working. So it was a bit binary. It was yes or no. Yeah, sorry. So that's the, the, the nature of digital technology as opposed Correct. to analog. So yeah. analog was using radio waves and they were able to bend around. Objects. Well, they were using, in, in essence, they were putting a, a signal on top of a radio wave, whereas the digital was putting uh, code, if you like, yeah, on top okay. of a radio wave. So it's yeah. a bit more complicated than that. But yeah, essentially, the, the GSM was a cleaner signal and, as I said, encrypted, but it just stopped when it stopped, and that was it, and the range wasn't as good. So we l used to get lots of complaints from people saying, well, you sold me this new GSM mobile. Well, this <laughs> other one I had, this old-fashioned one, still worked way out here, and this one yeah. doesn't. We're going to get the same thing when they turn off 3G, which is happening soon, because people that are using 4G go, well, hold on, 4G is great and better data and all these wonderful things, but I can't use it because just here is where I – drop out my 4G, but my 3G uh, still works for another couple of kilometres. Yeah. So the same thing happens over and over. We haven't learned a lot in that intervening period in those 30 years. But uh, interesting what happened behind the scenes with phones being or needing to be tapped. Do you know what's good for you? Well, when it comes to loud noises, maybe not so much going by some of the stats from Apple recently. You see, while you're probably not paying close enough attention, at least your Apple Watch is. One third of adults are being exposed to excessive noises and the risk of hearing loss are substantial. Matt, how's my level now? Are we good? What does your watch say? I can't hear you, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I went to an Ed Sheeran concert recently. And I sat there in the crowd and we're getting ready. I had the family who came along to go, the kids and my wife were all there. And I pulled out of my pocket a little container full of nice little yellow scrunchy bits scrunchy, that you stick you, in your ears. Yeah. And I offered them to my family and they all wanted to crawl up in a hole somewhere well away from me because <laughs> this was the ultimate faux pas to go and put oh, earplugs yeah. in during a concert, any concert. And this is not an insult to Ed Sheeran. I love Ed Sheeran's music, but... It's just loud. That's right. So I put my earplugs in. My Australian Standard 1270 Class 5 earplugs is the ones that I prefer. And I put those in my ears and sat there and listened to the concert. And it took about oh, not very long into the concert, a few minutes into the concert, and I felt my watch vibrate and it came up and said, oh, you're being exposed to loud noise. So I proudly showed that to my family saying, look, look what you're being exposed to. <laughs> and they just... I said, what? They rolled, that's right. They rolled their eyes and went, Dad, sorry, we're just going to go over here away from you somewhere. But what Apple did was they teamed up with the University of Michigan over a multi-year study. So they started back in 2019 and they basically did a study on how many times people were exposed to high levels of noise and the length of time and a whole range of things because... This is one of these things we talk about a lot, James. All these health devices we have on our bodies mm. and what they're monitoring and the information they're giving us as an individual. But Apple thought this would be fascinating to yeah. actually look at this data and see what they could find out about it 
on a collective. And so what they found out about it is bad news. <laughs> so, but but your watch didn't know you were wearing earbuds no. or those ear protections. And so we're assuming that some people who work in construction or industry probably have to wear their PPE. That's right. And, and maybe so. this is a new feature. I actually wrote a story about this recently and I, I said maybe this is a new feature that Apple or watch manufacturers could introduce so that when it pops up on your wrist to say you listen to a loud noise, are you wearing ear protection? You could say yes. Uh, and then it'd give you even further information. But at the moment it just says you're being exposed and yeah. so then you can just say okay to that. But I actually get it sometimes in the shower and sorry to those people who don't wear watches in the shower, I'm okay with wearing a watch in the shower. No, I'm not. Yeah, so some people don't <laughs> like the idea of it. But in the shower, the water must just hit the watch at the wrong angle sometimes. I don't particularly have a loud shower and oh. I'm not playing music in the shower. <laughs> it's not your singing then? <laughs> no, no, definitely not my right, singing. It might okay. say off key, but it doesn't say too loud. Right. But it comes up with a warning sometimes in the shower to say you're being exposed to loud noise, which again, obviously I'm not. So there's no option on there. So if I was part of the study, which I wasn't because only US citizens were part of this, but if I was part of that study, it would have me often being registered with loud noise when I go to concerts or when I get in the shower. Mm. So it's not perfect, but it does give us some idea of the loud noise we're being exposed to. So, yeah, you're right, it was over 30% of adults exposed to loud noise, and that was talking about exposure above 70 dB. It also talked about how often people are exposed to loud noise from their own earbuds. So when they put in their ah. AirPods or put on some instrument yeah. and they measured that at over 75 dB and that actually happened quite commonly as well. So that's when people, and sometimes I, I hear my kids and I can hear the music they're playing mm. and this is not earbuds, this is over the ear headphones. And I say, surely you've got to turn that in. If I can hear it beside you, mm. then it's got to be too loud when it's right over your ear. Yeah. I know, Dad, it's right. Don't worry about it. So I seem to have a problem with my kids and some noise, don't I? But they found 20% of people were exposed during the study time, regularly exposed to more than 75 dB on their earbuds or in their earbuds and in their over-the-ear headphones. So one of the things I find really interesting from this, it, it's interesting for a start, just about the noise study and the way they're using that for a study. But... We talk about heart rates and ECGs and blood pressure and a whole range of other things we're measuring with our devices. And I think that's fascinating. I think what we're doing from a health perspective is really interesting. But I hadn't actually thought before this study about the collective information. So then you start to look at, are there people in certain parts of the country? Are there certain people with certain demographics? How far down can we drill? What happens then when insurance policies come out uh, and they know that yeah. people that have got ECGs that show poor pro show problems come from certain demographics or certain areas of a country? Yeah. You go to, to get some health insurance there and they say, well, sir, we know that people in your area have got some bad results, so your health insurance premium has gone up by 20% based on all these Apple watches out there that are wow. feeding data back into a collective. There's no suggestion at this stage that any of this information is being used for that, but we're just at the start of this collection of information on an individual basis. What happens on the big picture basis? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, it's fascinating. So turn the volume down, folks. Not of this. This is perfect. We don't go too loud. We don't shout and yell too much on this. But on other things, turn the volume down because people are being exposed to that loud noise and we now know of those ill, of those side effects, those poor side effects. Look after yourself, people. Australian influencers have come under fire recently. Now there's some sad news. Because it would appear that many are unaware of the important advertising laws. It seems that having 40 million followers and accumulating likes by the thousands provides no practical legal defence. 
Matt, surely having no actual skills, talent, education or training equates to having no responsibility either. <laughs> Doesn't the job title of social media influencer bring some automatic protection from legal, legal obligation? Surely, surely. Because influencers can do whatever. And influencers do so much good for the country. <laughs> I'm not sure that I'd like my business card to say influencer. I'd be oh, a bit embarrassed to hand it out. I'd, I'd, look, if my kids become influencers, then I don't know. Maybe I've got to cut them from the will. I just... <laughs> <laughs> There's the warning. Any they won't children? need it. They won't need my will anyway. They'll be earning so much money. That's but right. what? I, I always, whenever I hear that word influencer, a little bit a part of me inside just dies. There's another influencer out there, and sucking the life out of everyone else. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so um, we've touched on a sensitive issue. Here, yeah, we obviously. have for me personally. Well, to make it worse, let me give you some data that'll give you more reason to cringe every time you hear the term mm. influencer. The ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, wanted information because they've been receiving information coming in. So they actually put out a call and said, tell us some information, the general public out there, where you've seen influencers behaving badly. They got a thousand responses oh. to that request. <laughs> so <laughs> That was on their first hit. <laughs> that, was, that was basically within the first few seconds of actually asking for it. And so they did some investigation. And what they found was that 81% of posts by and of those thousand influ- thousand responses, it related to about 150 influencers. So there were over 100 influencers. 81 percent of their posts were potentially misleading, according to the ACCC. And they found some of the categories: home and parenting. 81 percent was how many people were, were posting things misleading. 79 percent of travel influencers and things like they tag a brand or they'd put some referral links, but no mention that they were getting paid money. And that's the most mm. common thing. Yeah, they'll say, right, gee, yeah. product X is the best one that I've ever used. Here's the website to go and look at it if you're interested. Meanwhile, they're being paid a lot of money by product X to go and do that. You're allowed to do that as long as you disclaim and say, just by the way, I'm being paid a lot of money by product X to say this. I may not truly believe what I'm actually saying at the moment. <laughs> like sports people after a, yeah. a big match and they hold a certain can of soft drink and you know they're never going to take a sip out of that drink because nah. they're elite sports people, <laughs> but they've got to hold it there for a lot of money they're being paid. So they found that fashion industry, of all the ones we talked about, fashion industry influences were the worst. 96% of posts. can't believe that. <laughs> so you'd feel like something was wrong if you were in that 4% mm. posting things about fashion yeah. and saying, by the way, I got provided this dress for free or whatever it might be. So the other one that I found interesting was kidfluencers. So um. you want to you want to get some cringing going yeah. here. So now you've got some parents who are obviously involved somewhere mm. and they're getting their kids to be influencers. Unboxing's a thing. There was some kid that was about four or five years old and he was earning squillions of dollars just because he was unboxing toys and taking, people like to watch him unbox toys. That's right, taking those latest toys. And just, of, uh, of course, they were paid a lot of money to unbox certain brand of toys. Why did you choose that one? Because it's the best one in this category. Mm. By the way, I was being paid a lot of money, which they mm. don't say. Now, again, that might be part of the defence. I'm just a kid. I didn't know about these laws. I didn't know the ACCC expected me to be truthful and honest in what I was putting out there. Mum and Dad just said to do this. Mm. So until they're 18, obviously, they might be able to get away with it a little bit more. But the other part that's a bit concerning about it is that the ACCC has talked about some of these influences being used potentially, and, and this isn't I'm trying to protect influencers here, James, from, from uh, it sounds funny that I'm going to bat for them, but not all influencers are involved in social media scams, but there have been examples where some people have. In other mm. words, they've said, here's this great new product, go and buy some sort of Bitcoin or go and, and invest in some particular product, which is a sham product. And of course, they're being paid 
to promote that. And we've seen some Hollywood stars wrapped up in some of these things. And the losses already we're talking about are about $80 million we threw in 2022, $56 million in 2021. So that's on the increase. And that's from social media influencers involved in scams. So again, Mm. I'm not trying to label all influencers in that, but sometimes because they're not exposing or not declaring what they're promoting and what they're being paid to promote, sometimes I'll say these things and people will go, oh, well, I'll go and invest in that product because Billy Bloggs told me to invest in it. So I suppose the message here is be aware, make sure you do your research first. But if the influencers, how hard is it? How hard is it just to say, by the way, here's a product I'm being paid to promote. Here's a tag at the bottom to say that I'm doing some promotion there because eventually the ACCC is going to start rounding these people up and they're going to be taken out of the scheme. So if you're making your money out of that, then maybe do it a bit more legitimately. I think the lesson is if you're so self-absorbed, then um, maybe it's time to start paying attention to other things. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a better lesson. Nothing breeds initiative like tough times, and in that way, the, gu- the global energy crisis is the gift that keeps on giving. If you're unsure what I'm talking about there, just go back through most of our episodes in Tech Talk to date. Creativity is the key when you're fi- are fishing for cost-effective, clever energy solutions. And here's one for the fast food industry. Recycling their hot fumes and saving on heating bills. Matt, this is another one of those great solutions that are just staring at you in the face. It does seem like one of those things, doesn't it? The great solutions often are, oh, that was obvious, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. But someone (laughs) had to make it obvious before everyone else said it was obvious. That's right. And this is one of those, how much heat gets sent up in the air from... And just spat out into the the atmosphere. And then they spend money on heating the rest of the environment, the fast food cafe, whatever it might be, when they could actually use that air now. It's obviously not that simple just to say, well, let's take that air and, I don't know, redirect it somewhere else. So you get heat exchanges, and that's exactly what a company in Sweden is doing. They've, at the moment, got 250 of these heat exchanges installed around Burger Kings around Sweden, and it probably works better in a very cold country, probably not so relevant in Australia in most parts. Sure, we get a bit chilly in winter, but we're not really that cold because it costs money to put these heat exchanges in. So you're talking about maybe $20,000, $25,000 to put one in in a normal sort of Burger King, Mm. but the saving in heating bills might be fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars a year. So you're probably getting your money back after a bit over a year, and that seems like a reasonable investment to then say, well, forevermore I'm saving that amount of money. Sure the heat exchanger might need some maintenance down the track, but it sounds like a pretty clever idea. Now it hasn't been relevant. The concept's been around for a while, but it hasn't been relevant in the past because electricity was cheap enough. So you said, well, you're not going to save sixteen grand a year, I'm saving five grand a year spending that amount of money to put it in, I don't get an ROI for another six or seven years, not worth it. But now, electricity is dearer, suddenly it's a bit more cost-effective to do it. So the concept really is take that heat that's going up, put it through a heat exchanger, and that's where a bit of the magic happens, where the creativity happens, what's the best way to capture that heat and take it back through the rest of the restaurant, and that's where, obviously, the technology is, and then redistribute that heat from that hot air coming up there. Now, you're never going to get all the heat back. We know that energy can't be created out of nothing. It can only be, its form can be changed. That's right, but if you can transfer it in an effective way... Yeah, if you could do a high-efficiency transfer, if you could transfer, 
I don't know, 80% of that heat, 85% of that heat that's coming out of that deep fryer, for example, out Rather of your cooking equipment. Rather than just pouring it out into the air. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly right. Sounds clever, doesn't it? It does. And look, um, who would have thought the Scandinavians had come up with an idea like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, good on them. Uh, there is another company, just to stick up for the, the Brits, there's another company in the UK that's doing something similar, but the, the Swedes seem to be well ahead of everyone else at the moment. Well, we know that the UK's in all sorts of strife with um, high energy prices and stuff like that, so they're going to be looking for whatever creative solutions they can get. Mm, exactly mm. right. So, uh, yeah, interesting concept. It is so frustrating when a neat and very useful little piece of technology gets hijacked by the bad guys and used for no good. Just like the mobile phone technology of 30 years ago, AirTags now have Apple and Google working overtime to protect people from stalkers. Matt, a handy and very simple device, but a sneaky way for people to get up to no good nonetheless. And we've talked about it a little bit before where Apple have introduced a system where if you're using one of their AirTags and using it for your own device, it's fantastic. Well done using technology in a smart way. But if I decide I want to stalk you and I just drop a little AirTag in your briefcase or your handbag if you carry one, maybe in your car, for example, then on an iPhone then you'll get a warning after a couple of days to say, by the way, James, there's an air tag that's been with you over the last couple of days, but it's not yours. Maybe someone's doing something untoward. And that's fine if you use an iPhone. Mm. But if you use an Android phone... We're cactus. That's right. Now, we know this is a big problem when Google and Apple have sat down and had constructive talks together. They don't like talking to each other normally. <laughs> They're a bit competitive, and so they'd yeah. rather not have any conversations. But this has been a big enough issue, and stalking with AirTags or a variety of devices mm. has been a big enough issue that Google and Apple have actually got together and said, we need to solve this problem together. Let's let's act like adults here and actually solve this problem so, so we don't have people out there having some stalker really give them a pretty hard time. Already the other Bluetooth manufacturers on the market, the likes of Tile and Samsung and Pebble etc., they've already agreed to this standard. So if you're using one of those devices and you install an app on your Android phone or, or on your Apple phone, and that will do the same thing. It'll automatically alert you, whatever type of phone you've got, if there's an app on there to say, by the way, someone's following you that's got this particular device. But again, with Apple, it hasn't happened until now. So from now, going forward, if you've got a Google phone and there's an AirTag near you for a couple of days, for a certain period of time, you will actually get a warning on your Google phone as well as your Apple phone right. to say that this AirTag has been following you for a bit too long. Maybe you want to do something about it. Then obviously what you do is go and find it. So you might need to search around through your belongings. Where is it in your car, as I said before? Maybe it could be somewhere, probably not on your body. You probably notice that. Maybe in the pocket of your jeans, your favorite mm. jeans, who knows? But there's one near you, so maybe you need to do something about it. And it's not if it's going to be near you for five minutes because every luggage handler at the airport... I was airport, just going to say, yeah, luggage <laughs> handlers walking around just getting these little alerts, oh, yeah, again. Another one. <laughs> so it's not as if it's beside you for five minutes. It's got to be a period of time. And I don't know the exact period of time, but I'm guessing a couple of days so that if it's someone that's left it near your body, on your body, on somewhere that you are regularly, and then mm. it's, it's coming up near your phone. So a baggage handler, if you fly every day in that same airport and a bit of baggage is lost there, maybe that would happen, but no, it's not going to be if it just... Yeah, I'm wondering if your job is to hang around in the, the lost baggage um, storeroom... <laughs> 
<laughs> and how many alerts you'd get then. <laughs> and presumably, anyway, you go home at small night. Small potatoes. That's right. But, but you go home at night and come back the yeah, next that's day. Right. So yeah, good point. You're probably not near it often enough. But look, it's a good move because yeah. obviously we talk about a bit. There's some technology out there that's fantastic, but sometimes, yep. all the time actually, someone says, oh, I yeah. could do this with this now. We talked about people um, just popping them into like uh, what the tyre in these uh, wheel um, well of a car and whatnot and just tracking yeah. cars around. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And, and people have robbed houses by that. They know when the car's yeah. away from the home, all those sort of things. But again, this is a couple of mega companies getting together to say, let's do some good for society. Fantastic. Mm. Since the mid-1980s, when I actually got into the sunglass market, I've been a huge advocate for polarising sunglasses. Better than just tinted plastic lenses, polarisers use a neat trick of physics to cut out 50% of the light passing through. Great for removing glare. Well, it's now 2023, and straight out of Japan is a new pair of glasses that'll detect light intensity and adjust the lighting to hit your eye in just one fiftieth of a second. Matt, these are designed for people with very sensitive vision. Am I right? These are designed for people with photophobia. And I'd never heard of photophobia. I would have assumed it was a fear of photos, but it's not. <laughs> it's a fear or a phobia around a bright light. Hmm. And so you've got glasses. Now, in fact, I've got a pair that I use back to my push bike again. When I go riding early in the morning, I put on a pair of sunglasses that are mostly clear early in the morning when it's dark. And then as the sun comes up, they slowly go to a tinted sunglass. Fantastic. But they go over minutes, not 20 microseconds, as you mentioned there. What happens in this particular set of glasses, developed in the Institute of Science and Technology over in Japan, is that they will actually look at the entire area of vision in a a screen on on your eye. And if they see one bright light anywhere on that, it will turn down just that one sector of the glasses itself, which is why it needs to change so quickly because you move around, a bright light appears, a light turns on, you turn in one area and there's the sun hitting you out the side of there. So it just turns down that part of the screen. So it actually uses a transparent LCD screen, but then that transparent LCD screen can be made to be less than transparent, maybe not opaque, but certainly much darker in any of those sections across the glasses. So it sounds very clever. At the moment, the prototype that I looked at look like a very big, chunky pair of glasses because they've got cameras around the front and they've got a fair bit of technology built into the edge of the frame because it needs that transparent LCD screen. But as they said, as the researchers said, once it gets to the stage, if this is mass manufactured, they'll be made to look a bit tidier. And sure, they'll probably have thicker rims than a normal pair of glasses would have, but not the ugly, boxy sort of look they are at the moment. They're really being used for testing. But even the pair at the moment, they said they're not that expensive. Just the prototypes they've made so far only cost about $900 per pair, which Mm. sounds expensive for a pair of glasses, but this is a pretty impressive pair of glasses. Yeah, and Uh, uh, it's for a specific purpose as well, yeah? Exactly right. I don't know how many people in the world are affected by photophobia, but is there a market there for a manufacturer to get on board and say, sure, we'll go and manufacture these. For all those people out there that are affected by photophobia, who knows if other people might like the idea as well, driving along and they see a bright light. It might be from a, a car coming the other direction. It might be from just street lights. could be the sun. Whatever it is that appears in your field of vision, that little part of the glass could actually go darker. Photophobics have got something to look forward to. Exactly right. EV sales are going gangbusters overseas. But as we all know, Australia marches to the beat of their own drum. Matt... 
Range anxiety is still a big thing, even for our Aussie urban drivers, I guess. Holding out for that one big trip every couple of years. Mm, I'm not sure what it is, you know. I'm not sure if it's range anxiety. I'm not sure if it's a bit of hangover from previous Polly saying it'll wreck your weekend. I there, there's also a bit of pushback saying, oh, these batteries are um, environmentally unfriendly as well. I, I get that too. Yeah, as opposed to burning petrol, which seems like it's great for yeah. the environment. Yeah. <laughs> so I try not to focus too much on EV, EV sales. There'd be nine stories a week we could do about EVs if we wanted to. But the International Energy Agency just came out with its latest global EV sales report. And I thought there's some interesting information in here. EV sales, and this is basically on the calendar year we're talking about here, so we're a few months behind, so this is the calendar year 2022 they're talking about. EV sales across the world increased by 50% from 2021 to 2022, so that's Mm -hmm. good news. EV sales across the world accounted for 14% of all new car sales. So that's pretty impressive as well. Now, most of those are in the US, China, and Europe. So there's 95% of all EV sales are in those three areas. BYD, and I think they're being a little bit tricky here, BYD sales have overtaken Tesla. BYD is the build-your-dream company out of China. China, But the only thing I don't like about that stat is that BYD includes some hybrids, some plug-in hybrids, admittedly, which are better than normal hybrids. But they've still got those sales in there. So, yes, they're beating sales of Tesla, but only by combining pure EVs and plug-in hybrid EVs. So, so would a, yeah, would a Toyota Prius classify as an EV sale then? Well, no, it, it wouldn't. And it's not a plug-in. They're a hybrid, but not a plug-in hybrid. Yeah, okay, gotcha. So this here should really be talking about pure EVs, which is where the whole market's going. And so you look at all of that and you think, well, that's quite interesting. Even just the growth over a five-year time frame, EV sales worldwide – Back in 2017, 1 million EV sales, which isn't too bad. Mm. 2022, 10 million EV sales. So that sounds pretty impressive. So all these things are sounding pretty good to me, but then I get to Australia (laughs) (laughs) and I look at our numbers and I I do struggle a little bit about why, but... They're growing though. They're growing. Our EV sales accounted for... 3.8% 3.8% in 2022. So remember, 14% across the world. Mm. And that's the world. That's not just picking a couple of countries across the world. Mm. That's all sales. So there are some countries where they would have very few EV sales. So our 3.8% really lags a long way behind. And yes, they have grown a bit. There's a discussion that at the moment that probably 83,000 in 2022, as in actual numbers of, of cars, so EVs in Australia. So that's certainly growing. Probably one thing the IEA said is that maybe fuel efficiency standards, that seems to be a thing that pushes manufacturers around the world to put more EVs on sale. So when you start to introduce fuel efficiency standards and penalise a manufacturer mm-hmm. for not meeting those standards, that's when they have to put more EVs into the mix to bring those averages down. So yes, it's growing. It's hopefully getting to the point where it will grow much faster than it has. When they talk about global sales... The IEA says that they believe they'll increase by another 35%, so 50% before, remember, 35% from 2022 to 2023. So it's still growing. That's not quite as fast as the previous year. But we just hope that Australia sales grow a little bit more than they've been growing so far. Maybe maybe we're just waiting for uh, um, just the market to pick up with, with people who've purchased EVs, just talking about how they're having positive experiences. 
and then all of a sudden we'll just lurch. People will jump on the bandwagon and, and get involved that way. But um, yeah, they just, I don't know, we're just waiting to hear more good news about EVs. I think, I think you're right though. I think we'll hit a critical point and it's probably done, well, look at places like Norway, 92% of new yeah. car sales. So it goes along for a while, 3.8%. And I still talk to people who go, oh, I'll never drive one of those things. Oh, I'll have as much petrol spewing at the back of my exhaust as I possibly can. Mm. And I, I kind of jokingly say, well, give me a call in a few years' time when you buy your first EV. Oh, that won't happen. It's going to happen. Mm. There are very few people who won't be driving an EV at some stage in the near future. Yeah. But 3.8%, there's obviously a lot of people out there not buying them at the moment. Or they're being tricked by the advertising and buying a hybrid going, oh, I'm doing the right thing. I'm buying a hybrid. Well, no, it's not really the point. It's just a more efficient petrol engine car. It's not really a whole paradigm shift, which is what we need. And I think uh, talking to people, um, uh, the conversations I've been having, people are saying, yeah, we recognise that we are now of a generation that will see the death of fossil fuels powering cars. Yeah, yeah, the, and, and there are very much fewer people saying, oh, no, petrol is forever. You talk to more intelligent people than I do, obviously. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> There's still a few people out there who, who aren't convinced of this whole concept, but we're getting there. So... What's going to happen is we do copy the world in some respects from time to time, and I think this will be one where we will be a follower. And if the world's at 14% already, growing another 35% this year, then eventually someone in Australia en masse will go, oh, we should buy EVs, mm. and it'll happen. When Graham Clark implanted his first bionic ear in August of 1978, the outlook for the profoundly deaf changed enormously from that moment. A major medical hurdle had been overcome and the future was sounding great. Gifting vision to the blind has been a complete other story though. And there have been several efforts over the years, but a bionic eye remains elusive. But a new hope has emerged on the horizon, at least for those suffering from vision lost as opposed to vision never had. Matt, are we on the cusp of moving into an age that includes the bionic eye? Can we cue some music now from the Six Million Dollar Man? Oh, yeah. We've done it. There we go. It was automatically in my head straight away, as soon as you said the word. And it's interesting because I think that was back in the early 70s, maybe 73, somewhere around that, that the Six Million Dollar Man first came out. And we're getting some of those bits now, not maybe someone running at 60 miles an hour like Lee Majors did on the treadmill, but it got, was too noisy. It made too much. Yes, You couldn't creep up on someone, could you? He wasn't a very good spy because nah. you couldn't creep up on someone. <laughs> but we've got people who are using legs that have got some bionic help and arms that are doing that. Short ears, as you mentioned. The eye, though, is a bit trickier. Yeah. And this is a very specific bionic eye. If you've got age-related macular degeneration, which happens to a lot of people, or if you've got retinitis pigmentosa, which I didn't know what it was until I read this article, but basically if you've got photoreceptor death, so in other words, if your photoreceptors aren't working properly, that's exactly where this particular device is designed. It's a micro-LED device called a flex-LED, and so basically it goes in where your eye would sit. You don't replace your eye with it. It sits over your eye, and you have to wear glasses to go along with it, so it feeds a signal from the glasses into that part of your eye, but it essentially replaces the photoreceptors. So you're not trying to do all the tricky part with this huge optic nerve and all this mm. information that goes down that optic nerve that's a long way away, I think, before we can just cut that optic nerve on and resolder a new one in because there's so many nerves in there. Trying to match all that up is, is, well, I won't say impossible, but a very difficult process. One of the things that they are talking about with this is that 
it's only going to be the ability to put low quality vision into eyes of people that have, have lost photoreceptors. But they also talk about the fact that the brain is quite flexible, quite elastic. And so it may well be that the brain sees these images coming in and says, well, that's not great at the moment, but let's see if I can tune that up a bit. And over time, they actually believe the brain might do more with it. Now, they haven't installed this on any person yet. It's being used in rabbits. Don't know why they chose rabbits. Don't know whether they've got some eye anatomy that's very similar to humans, but the rabbits are saying it's fantastic so far. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know how they work out from the rabbits. I assume they do some brain sensing of them and have some images or or doing some uh, imaging of the brain while they're looking at vision to see if something's responding there. But the testing on the rabbits is proving to be successful so far. At some point, there'll be someone who will have one of these flex LEDs installed in their eye and a pair of glasses and they'll have vision again. They didn't. And I think you're right. One of the interesting things I think would be if you had vision and then lost it because you knew, you could remember what you had. You you know what purple looked like. But I just think about the concept of someone that's never had vision and describing a colour. You might be able to describe a physical object to them because you could put it in their hands to feel it. But how do you describe a colour to someone? Purple. Oh, well, it looks a bit like a... Uh, hold on, you don't know the other colours <laughs> I'm going to compare <laughs> it to. How do I do that? Yeah, so yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky one. But I don't know that we're anywhere near that concept yet, replacing vision for people that have never had it. But in this particular limited circumstance, we're getting there. So technology marches on. And here's one from our files of telescreens that do cool tricks. Here's our next story, Matt. To bend or not to bend, that is the question. And that is a question. A lot of people love their curved screen, whether it's yeah. their gaming monitor or even a small TV that they might watch. I don't know what the attraction is, but um, yeah, some people And I'm with you. It. I've sat down in front of a curved screen and gone, eh, it doesn't do much for me. I'll just stick with a flat screen. But there are some people out there who are torn. They love the idea of, well, maybe just a flat screen for their spreadsheets because that seems to make more sense. But then when they start playing a game on their computer, they want that immersive curved yeah. screen. So what do you do? Do you have two screens and you unplug one and then plug the other one in? It all sounds a bit clumsy. The obvious solution is to have a screen that is flat or curved depending on what you feel like for the day. Well, it's obviously a big problem because otherwise this company would not have come out with a solution for <laughs> that's, it. That's or maybe right. they've produced a solution before people realised they had a problem. I think that's more of the case. I think that's the invention that all of these tech companies love solving a problem you didn't know that you had. Yeah. So I, I was I was in our Tesla last night, come, uh, went out to dinner and had some friends in there coming home and one of them said, oh, can you do the bit where it make makes passing wind noises as you were driving along? Because I, I haven't heard, you know, the husband was in the car, my husband hasn't heard that noise yet. So you're going there in this wonderful EV and the most attractive feature Making is that can, noises. That's, that's it. So, yeah. so we didn't know we needed it in the car <laughs> until now. And of course you can move as to where it comes from. So which yeah. Of passengers yeah. doing that. So. <laughs> anyway, off topic slightly, but LG have now brought out a 42-inch LED, so OLED screen they call it. It's an LED, but with their O on it to make it sound special. The OLED screen, it's a flex display. Comes out of the box as a flat screen. You've got a little remote control because you sit so far away from your monitor that you need a remote control. And on that remote control, <laughs> you've got 20 steps of curvature that you can give the screen. So you can go to a fully curved screen as you would buy if you went and bought a normal curved screen or fully flat, or 20 steps in between. So you can get it 20 steps. You can get it just right. Now, the first thing I thought of (laughs) is that screens aren't normally designed to flex 
as in they're straight and then flexed, or you buy them when they're curved, but not to flex. There's a lot of technology, a lot of circuitry, and the, the whole case itself. How long is it going to last? And I watched a video where they were just curving it, flat, curve, flat, curve, flat, a number of times. And I thought, well, you're probably not doing it multiple times a day. You're probably going to find the right curve that suits you. Or maybe you do change it when you're dealing with work stuff compared to gaming stuff. So you might change it once a day, but you're not going to do it 50 times a day. So I looked at it and I went, I actually think it's going to handle a lot of changes in curvature. So anyway, it seems like it's all been thought out. We'll both have one within about 18 months anyway. That's right. So (laughs) apart from that, it's a pretty impressive monitor anyway. 4K, 120 hertz, 4 HDMI inputs, all the normal things you'd expect on a high-quality monitor. Probably the only feature they've added, which I'm not a big fan of, is the price. You're talking $3,500 for a 42-inch screen. Yeah, I'm going to wait till that price comes <laughs> That's right. It does seem expensive, doesn't it, for a 42-inch screen? But For a novelty. For a novelty. And I think once you got to the stage where you went, yeah, I'm happy with that now, what about how devastating would it be if you found that you play with the curvature, play with the straight, actually... I prefer it straight. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> so you pay all the money. You bought yourself one for 280 bucks. Right. <laughs> but it's quite clever technology. I was quite impressed with the technology side of it. And off in the distance, I can hear a plus-sized lady belting out a Wagnerian aria, and that's my cue to end the show. And that, folks, is your cue to get back to work and quit your lollygagging. Thanks for another cracking tech talk, Matt. I reckon we did some good today. I think so as well. And hopefully we'll get out there and keep spreading that message about the EV love and mm. get more people to start converting over. Even higher companies. I'm having trouble at the moment for sure. when I go away somewhere hiring a car that's an EV. So you've, you've really got to keep pr- impressing upon them. When it says certain EV or equivalent, I say, I don't want the equivalent, equivalent. to be a petrol car, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Just because it's got four wheels, I, I want yeah. the equivalent to be another EV. That's a bit of a, a struggle to get that message through to them. But anyway, we'll, we'll keep working on it, James. Well, we'll keep fighting the good fight. And that's it for me. I'm off to scour my personal belongings for any unwanted air tags. See if I can stave off those who wish me ill for at least one more day. Thanks for tuning in to another handcrafted edition of Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. I'm your host, James Eddy. And as always, we remain tremendously grateful for your company each week and hope that you're enjoying our tidy little product enough to maybe even, I don't know, recommend it to your friends too. In the meantime, take care until next week, next week, and we'll see you then. Toodle pip. Bye.